that's really where the benefit for readiness truly lies, not just for the training programs, the residency programs, the fellowships, but really the faculty, when they're assigned there, are exposed to the absolute best possible care that's available within American trauma surgery, and then can then apply those lessons on the battlefield. Welcome to War Dogs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. On this episode of War Docs, we speak with Air Force Reserve trauma surgeon Jeremy Cannon, a professor of surgery at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. Dr. Cannon talks about his experience as the Chief of Trauma and Critical Care at Brook Army Medical Center, the DOD's only Level 1 trauma center. He describes his roles in multiple deployments to Southwest Asia, including his experience as trauma czar at the Craig Joint Theater Hospital in Bagram, Afghanistan. Dr. Cannon discusses his research interests and how he was involved in the Air Force developing a robust adult ECMO program. He also talks about the history of the military's Excelsior Surgical Society and how it coordinates with the American College of Surgeons to capture and preserve vital combat casualty care lessons. Find out more about Dr. Cannon and our previous guests on our website, wardoxpodcast.com. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. Today, we're privileged to welcome Air Force Reserve Colonel Dr. Jeremy W. Cannon to Wardox. Jeremy, thanks for joining us today. I really, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for the invitation. Jeremy, you began your military career at the United States Air Force Academy. Tell us about how you became interested in Air Force medicine. Well, like many of my classmates at the Air Force Academy, I started out interested in aviation and engineering. I, of course, thought I was going to be a fighter pilot, test pilot, maybe an astronaut and an engineer along the way. But all of that pretty abruptly changed on the third day of basic training when I developed a spontaneous pneumothorax. I didn't really know what was happening. I just felt funny and I knew that something wasn't quite right until they took me to the, to the hospital, actually. And that's where I found out that things were going to be quite a bit different from what I thought when I first showed up three days before. So through that experience, I had a pretty intimate firsthand exposure to military medicine, and it was quite interesting. And then throughout that first year, I discovered a love for the life sciences and really started to pretty aggressively pursue pre-medical studies at that point. So it was an abrupt change, but one that I ultimately embraced and really had no regrets. So your plan B didn't turn out too bad because following the Air Force Academy, you went to medical school at Harvard. How did you choose the pathway to become a surgeon and then even further later specializing in trauma surgery and critical care? Well, during vacations at the academy, I had a family friend who was an anesthesiologist and he was kind enough to allow me to shadow him in the hospital in my hometown. And through that experience, I really fell in love with the operating room. I was just mesmerized by the skill, seeming effortless procedures that were just carried out with such a mastery. And uh, I was just absolutely fascinated. So I fell in love with the operating room. And interestingly, a number of the surgeons there in my hometown had 
just come back from volunteering to serve as a reservist in Gulf War One, And that really was quite inspiring. So it was like all these pieces were coming together, my military service through the academy, this new discovery of the operating room, this sort of like inner sanctum. It just really seemed like a great fit for me. And then regarding trauma, I have to say that was not completely an accident because I think things happen for a reason, but it also was not plan A. I thought I was going to be a pediatric surgeon, but then through the needs of the Air Force and my first deployment, I, I really just fell in love with the incredible challenges of trauma surgery, of hemorrhagic shock, and just so many different aspects of taking care of critically injured patients. So it was a combination of events that really ultimately led me into this field that, that I really relish. So I'm interested because you spent quite a bit of time in Boston, not only in medical school, but also in your residency. But there's a particular part of your, your resume that says that you received a master's of science in mechanical engineering from MIT. Tell us about what it was being in the Air Force when you were in Boston, because you were in a civilian training program, and about that time at MIT when you were getting your mechanical engineering master's. You know, that was an interesting phase of my life. As you heard just a couple of minutes ago, I started out thinking I would major in engineering. I thought I would become an engineer. So I was sort of geared toward those sort of academic problems. And during my research time in my residency, I, I felt like I wanted to come away from that experience with something tangible. So that's where the idea of, of a master's degree came about. And at the time, robotic surgery was just taking off. It was quite new. And I found a research mentor who thought that there might be some applications for cardiac surgery. And I was toying with the idea of becoming a cardiac surgeon. And this really interesting research project came together where we were looking at using real-time echo to guide an intracardiac robot to fix atrial septal defects. So it was a fascinating project that really inspired me to think about using engineering to, to tackle tough clinical problems. I also learned a ton about writing grants and about the IACUC for doing animal research. And it, it really just was a very productive time and, and one that shaped my subsequent career and interest in research, to be sure. So fast forward a little bit, and you were assigned to Wilford Hall Air Force Medical Center when it was part of the level one trauma system in San Antonio in combination with UT Health and Brook Army Medical Center. Ultimately, San Antonio Military Medical Center was formed in a merger with the Air Force and Army, and that trauma mission moved exclusively to BAMSI and UT Health. Tell us a little about that transition and some of the barriers and, and how those were overcome to have a seamless integration and continued level one trauma center in San Antonio that works. That all came about after I had been in San Antonio for about four or five years. I had a deployment under my belt. I was about to deploy for a second time. And this rumbling about the two military trauma programs merging started to surface. And ultimately, I think it, it turned out to be really synergistic and a very positive thing. But there were some, some challenges along the way, as you indicated. The Air Force and the Army trauma programs were integral to the trauma system in South Texas. Before 2010, they had referral patterns that had been well-established. There were sort of the local ambulance traffic around 
each of the military installations was pretty well ironed out. And so you can imagine moving one trauma program all the way across town to a different center created some confusion and some challenges among our EMS folks. But we did a lot of work to let them know about this move to work with the health and the Southwest Texas Regional Advisory Council, which coordinates and, and governs all the pre-hospital management. And as a result, I think most of the hiccups and challenges were averted, but it really did sort of change the, the flow of patients quite a bit. In addition to that, there was really integration of, of clinical services. And not only were we integrating the trauma surgeons, but orthopedics, neurosurgery, critical care, radiology, all these various specialties that are so integral to managing critically injured patients. So all those services had to come together. So really it was a, a complex move. And as a result, our director of trauma, Tim Nunez at the time, I think made a very wise move to essentially seek consultation from the American College of Surgeons to make sure we had all the pieces in place to ensure that we perform very well in our trauma verification site survey. And through his leadership, the ACS came in and, and helped us sort of address a couple of issues here and there that might have caused trouble down the road. And so it was a collaborative process and a very complicated process, but also we ended up turning out quite well. At the same time, we were expanding the operating rooms, remodeling some of the older operating rooms. And so there was a lot going on back then. Uh, but we, we got through it. And as I became more involved in the leadership, we had an opportunity to then grow what had already been established. You know, one of the things that, that I hear a lot is, you know, we've got a level one trauma center that the military is involved with really at only one place, and that's in San Antonio. Why is it don't we have level one integration in other cities where there's a big military hospital or other kind of presence? And I know that the answer is not as simple as, well, we just hadn't thought of it. There's a lot of politics. There's a lot of other things that happen. Can you comment a little bit about why you think that idea hasn't gained more steam? Well, you did touch on it. It's a complicated decision that involves community leaders, involves medical leaders, involves military leaders. And there really needs to be a demonstrated need uh, for either a new trauma program or the mission that's already being handled by other medical centers to move to the military medical center. So there actually have been some interesting research projects looking at where geographically across the United States there, A, is the trauma need, and B, where is that trauma need aligned with military assets? And so uh, it turns out that Camp Lejeune really falls in that sweet spot. And so the program there has served an important need for the community, and they're doing incredible work from a trauma readiness standpoint. So that's, that's a, an example of where this has done well. In other places where there is not a demonstrated need, and you're sort of like wedging yourself into a trauma system, it becomes a little more difficult, a little more politically fraught, and is perhaps not something that's welcomed by the community. But I think there are opportunities and, and we need to look for those and pursue them as aggressively as we can. Because as you indicated, the trauma experience down in San Antonio has been wildly successful. 
and has served an important readiness mission for the DoD. And I think there are opportunities to replicate that in other places. Before we move on to your deployment experiences, let's wrap up this section where we talk about the trauma system in San Antonio. With the time in which you were the chief of trauma and critical care at BAMSI, tell us about how this integrates the citywide trauma system with the San Antonio Military Medical Center and a few of the accomplishments that occurred when you were the chief of trauma. Well, it does fit intimately within the Southwest Texas Regional Advisory Council. We're directly opposite the civilian level one trauma center at UT San Antonio and are great collaborators and partners with them. We serve not just military casualties from combat operations, but a large part of the mission down there is to actually care for civilians. So we take care of civilians from the San Antonio community, from the greater South Texas catchment area, and have a a very robust clinical program there. I just saw that the trauma program received a renewed verification from the American College of Surgeons in 2022. They saw over 5,000 trauma activations and had nearly 4,000 admissions, which that's an incredibly robust trauma program by any measure. And these patients are not minimally injured. They're in many cases severely injured. And I think that's really where the benefit for readiness truly lies, not just for the training programs, the the residency programs, the fellowships, but really the faculty, when they're assigned there, are exposed to the absolute best possible care that's available within American trauma surgery, and then can then apply those lessons on the battlefield. One of the things I was impressed with when I had a chance to work with the Southwest Texas Regional Advisory Council, known as STRAC, is how big of an area that is covered. I think it's, what, 22 counties, and it's bigger than most states. And, and so th- this medical trauma system centered in San Antonio really has a big responsibility and a big mission, like you said. Let's take you into some of your deployment experiences. In 2007, you were deployed as a combat surgeon with the 332nd Air Force Theater in Balad, Iraq. Tell us about some of the lessons learned from that deployment and maybe any memorable cases or stories. Well, that that truly was a remarkable experience. Six months after I finished my residency and fellowship and came into my first clinical practice, I found myself on a flight to Iraq, which I had been sort of mentally prepared for that. But when you're actually living it, it just takes it to a new level. You know, you're certainly nervous, anxious, was all your training enough? Was your pre-deployment training focused on the right things? Did I absorb it all? I mean, it just really is an amazing experience. And I have to say, that's really where I fell in love with trauma, as I indicated earlier, and was truly reconciled to my ultimate specialization in trauma surgery. It was a tent hospital, although it was a hub of operations, a level three facility, and we had lots of casualties coming through there. It still was pretty rough around the edges. One experience was that the HVAC unit for keeping the the tents cool caught on fire about midway through my deployment and could have set the whole thing on fire pretty quickly, but we smelled this sort of very characteristic electrical smoke and noticed that one of the units right outside one of our ICUs was 
smoking a lot. And then actually there were flames there, but the team responded quickly, put out the fire and we evacuated the patients. It was really sort of drama on top of a pretty dramatic daily experience of managing these waves of casualties. Some of my first clinical cases, you know, I still remember the very first very sick patient I took care of with Warren Dorlach, one of my dear friends and colleagues. He had actually volunteered to come down from launch stool on a forward deployment. And I uh, still remember working on this very critically injured patient with terrible thoracic injuries with Warren. Uh, we had a Iraqi kid that had taken a fragment to the abdomen, had been managed in a local hospital for about two weeks and became very septic. And it turns out he had a bio leak around the fragment and it was all leaking into his chest. So he essentially came into the hospital with an infected tension bilothorax, which, you know, there's no like trauma fellowship where you see something like that. So yeah, I took care of that patient with Dave Smith, who was our commander, incredible surgical oncologist and surgical intensivist. And I mean, it was just a phenomenal case, phenomenal experience. We saved the kid's life and I just still remember that remarkable case. It is one of the, those experiences that just makes you fall in love with the surgery and in my case, trauma. I donated whole blood for a whole blood drive. I mean, that was a really unique experience when I learned to live sort of the whole spectrum of possible experiences. And then I also was just so amazed at the effectiveness of warm, fresh whole blood. Uh, so it was, it was just a remarkable experience from beginning to end and one that I'll treasure for the rest of my life. So as a surgeon, I'm going to have to ask you about the bilothorax. So that implies that there's an injury to either the liver or the gallbladder and the diaphragm, and that it has to leak preferentially in that direction. So just give us a quick two-minute version of how you, what it was and how you fixed it. That's exactly right, Wayne. It was the fragment had traversed the liver, essentially bivalve the liver, and was lodged just to the right of the patient's vena cava into the diaphragm. And so that created that pathway where all the bile that was leaking from that channel sort of preferentially wanted to go up into that right hemithorax. So the fragment literally was stenting the, the diaphragmatic injury open and the bile was just freely flowing up into the right chest. He had a small laceration to his right lower lobe. So we, of course, relieved the tension initially, but it was this very sort of gelatinous, semi-solid substance. So we started with a thoracotomy, evacuated all of that identified where the fragment was coming into the diaphragm and recognized right away that this was going to be potential, potentially tiger country up there. So we reopened his previous laparotomy from a couple of weeks pre before and mobilized his liver, saw that it was just lateral to the vena cava, that the hepatic vein was intact and very carefully removed the fragment. So in 2009, you then went to Afghanistan. And at that time, you were the trauma czar at the Craig Joint Theater Hospital in Bagram, Afghanistan. And, and for our listeners, when you hear hospital, you might be thinking of a big building, but the Craig Hospital is actually just a small, small medical facility with some operating rooms. Maybe you can elaborate on that. But how did you find that the two theaters were different? And then how were they similar in regards to the traumatic injuries you were seeing? Up until... 2009, Afghanistan had been relatively quiet. There were significant casualties along the way, but the, the numbers were not all that vast. But then we started the surge down in Helmand province, and that really kicked off a, a huge uptick 
in the number of casualties. So in that way, it became very similar to what I'd experienced in Iraq, just this constant high volume, high acuity, wave after wave of casualties. Now, a difference is that in Afghanistan, they have these fighting seasons and the weather really drives that and the mountainous terrain drives that. And so in the winter, when the snow is piled up high on the mountains, there's relatively less kinetic activity. So when I first arrived in January, February, it, it was sort of actually pretty slow. But then March, April, May, man, the casualties really started rolling in and, and it became pretty intense. Another difference is that we saw quite a bit of cold injury, so frostbite. In Afghanistan, some of the fighting is in sort of mountainous locations and frostbite can become an issue. In Iraq, hypothermia was actually an issue when early on in the conflict, Humvees would have a rollover event and folks trapped in a Humvee might be immersed or submerged in a ditch, for example. They could definitely become hypothermic. In fact, that became one of the first clinical management guidelines that was produced in Iraq was a hypothermia prevention guideline, which seems a little strange in a desert environment, but it, it, it did actually become an issue. But in Afghanistan, there actually was like frostbite that we saw. So that's another difference. And then in Afghanistan, the, there are vast distances and as I have indicated, pretty rough terrain. And so uh, I would take uh, the casualties a while to, to come in until of course, uh, secretary Gates said, do you believe in the golden hour or not? And if you believe in the golden hour, we've got to get your casualties to surgical care within that hour. And then that, that sort of changed the time frame of when casualties would arrive. So our guests, if they're interested to learn more about the trauma czar role, we actually did a special interview with Dr. Kirby Gross, and that was released at the end of July of 2022. But would you briefly describe the role of the trauma czar and what were your most significant challenges and how did you deal with those? Well, just like with President Truman, the buck stops here with the traumas are. Uh, with regards to all aspects of inpatient care in the four walls of the Craig Joint Theater Hospital. So they're really like a, a super chief for the sort of default attending on call for all trauma patients. So you make daily rounds in the ICU, you make rounds on the ward, and really all clinical decisions flow through you, when to operate, when not to operate, when to evacuate, when not to evacuate. And so really it's a, it's a lot of responsibility, but after the training I had experienced in my first deployment, I, I really felt like I was ready. Some of the challenges are leading your peers, building your credibility and your reputation for sound clinical decision-making. It takes time. You've got to build trust. And you have to also build trust with your team. So it's a bi-directional thing. And then I'd say one of the unexpected challenges, we took care of a lot of children. I had seen that in, in Iraq. And so I knew that was a possibility. One thing I did not really prepare for mentally and was pretty surprised by is that I actually knew some of the folks that came in as casualties. I had met them in previous walks of life. I had encountered them in other settings and to then see them as your patient, really, it was, it was quite moving. I wouldn't trade the experience and, but it really motivated you to, to want to absolutely do your best. 
You returned later to Afghanistan and were the deputy director for clinical services for the task force Medis in Bagram. How was that role different from Traumazar? And was one more strategy and one was more clinical tactics? What was the difference? Yeah, I think that's a great way to characterize it. So the DCCS deputy director for clinical services, you're in charge of, of casualty flow. In this case, they had already divided the theater into east and west, so I was in charge of the eastern half. But it's much more of a strategic position. So casualty flow, and, and you ultimately have to decide uh, when do patients come into the Craig Joint Theater Hospital or not. So that's a, it's a different responsibility and a, certainly a, a very big responsibility. And that pager goes off all the time, like 24-7 hits. It's pretty intense. And you see the whole spectrum of casualties from service animals to getting calls about civilian burn victims across the theater. It's, it's really, it was a fascinating experience. So put us in your shoes for just a minute. So your pager's going off. Give us an example of what questions you had from other people in regards to these evacuations. So one example I indicated already was a burn victim. We got a phone call from a role two facility that had taken in a couple of civilians that had been burned in a flash burn event. I think it was a cooking stove or something. And one of the one of the victims was especially bad. It was a young girl, teenager that had something like 80 or 90% burns. And they were seeking advice and they were seeking consultation and they were also looking for possible approval to evacuate that patient into our hospital. But at the time, the rules of engagement and the evacuation rules really precluded us from taking on a, a responsibility like that. And so we had to make the tough decision of advising that they institute comfort, comfort measures. So really, the American service member would have green light to Bagram, but the triage really was the limited resources for civilian casualties. That's right. That's a major investment, and, and at the time, it was not one that we could commit to. You were the founding medical director for the Department of Defense Adult Extracorporeal Life Support Lung Rescue Program. Why did the Air Force start this program, and what are the military applications of this specialized care? First of all, the Air Force, to its credit, ultimately recognized the value of a program like this beyond just the individual patient that we were taking care of. It had wide-reaching benefit across GME, across readiness platforms, and, and really throughout the ASNS. How did it get started? Well, it actually started for adults. It started with data from the Combat Casualty Registry, now the Department of, Department of Defense Trauma Registry, or DODTR. We looked at severe lung injury, ARDS, and specifically looked at the number of patients that were potentially or actually dying of, of severe lung injury. And it was not a, an insignificant number. It was enough to, to really make the AFMS, Air Force Medical Service, pay attention. And at the same time, the Air Force had a longstanding commitment to lung rescue for neonates and for pediatric patients. They had been performing ECMO and ECMO transport for a couple of decades before this possibility came up. On the civilian side, places like University of Michigan, 
Columbia University in New York, uh, were demonstrating that this could actually be safely applied to adults as well, without massive bleeding complications, without sort of a certain death sentence. And that's because there were some new, new and improved elements to the ECMO circuit that were less problematic in terms of hemolysis to the blood and coagulopathy for the patient. So all that sort of came together in 2010, 2011, and we were able to make a compelling argument that, that this could benefit combat casualties and the Air Force ultimately gave us a green light. So do you have any specific examples that are kind of proof of concept of, hey, what, we're right, this does work? Well, I was involved in a couple of patients that were local patients in San Antonio. Our very first patient was a TENS patient. She had a terrible reaction to a medication. It started sloughing all of her skin and it actually sloughed the lining of her airways. So she had essentially airway obstruction and inability to effectively exchange gas. So she was profoundly hypoxic and hypercarbic and uh, we had just gotten approval to to start the program, and she was in our burn unit at uh, the ISR. And uh, we started her on ECMO, and uh, a couple of weeks later, she came off of ECMO and actually had a full recovery. I saw her in clinic about a month later. Uh, walked into clinic, and it was just amazing. And then, as far as combat casualties, the lung rescue team actually flew all the way into Afghanistan, picked up a casualty, and flew him back. It was written up in. A couple of the military news outlets, this was just a couple of years ago. So it really grew and evolved and turned into a program that could actually provide global lung rescue reach. Another real success story was we had a beneficiary in Germany, a young lady that had respiratory failure. We weren't actually certain the cause of the failure. Turns out it was probably some sort of mold infection affecting her lungs. But we were able to start her on ECMO in Germany did the first adult transatlantic transport back to San Antonio, supported her on ECMO for 80 days until she, they found a match for a, a lung transplant. And then she had a lung transplant over at University Hospital and also walked back into our ICU, which was really just amazing. So as a vascular surgeon who works at a hospital, BAMC, that does in fact have an ECMO program, the procedure and putting someone on ECMO carries with it quite a bit of risk, particularly because you're putting large bore tubes into the arteries that supply the extremities, the arms and the legs. Was there something that allowed this technology to be more mobile and placed on an aircraft? Or was it that the people were being trained in which they could then support ECMO on a mobile platform? Really, I think it was both that came together simultaneously. So the transportable equipment was being developed in, in the late 2000s. There's now a very compact transportable lung rescue circuit that, uh, that the ECMO team in San Antonio uses quite regularly. We didn't actually have that for our very first transports, but we used the equipment that we had. It was much smaller in size, much lower profile than uh, the large sled that was required for the neonatal and pediatric transports even just 10 years before. So the equipment did definitely improve. The size of all the components decreased. And then as we saw that this was a possibility, we really actually started training pretty intensively on how to safely insert these cannulas, the best 
set up in terms of the, the vessels to access, where to place your cannulas, how deep to put them, what right looks like. And we actually had a lot of help from uh, the civilian ECMO community as well. Bob Bartlett, in particular from the University of Michigan, was a huge help. Dave Brody from, from Columbia University in New York City was a huge help. And it really was a, a team effort and came together in a beautiful, beautiful fashion and was ultimately quite successful. So in 2015, you decided to leave active duty and join the Air Force Reserves. Why did you make that transition and what was it like? Well, I had finished my active duty service commitment after serving for nine years in San Antonio, but I really felt like I relished the mission and wanted to continue to serve in some way. I thought that the reserve transition would be fairly straightforward, but it turns out it was almost like starting over in some ways. I had to talk to a recruiter. I had to find a position that was suitable. And so even as I was applying for these civilian positions, I was involved in a parallel application process to go into the Air Force Reserves. I felt some sense of urgency because I didn't really want a gap in service, meaning a time period of a year or longer between active duty and reserve time that creates some administrative challenges. But ultimately, it, it all came together. My recruiter came through for me. I found a reserve position that worked well, and I was able to continue to contribute in some way. So while in the reserves, you served four years as combat casualty care investigator at David Grant Medical Center at Travis Air Force Base in Vacaville, California. What was your role and describe this position to us? I ended up working with the reserve unit in Georgia uh, that's in charge of all Air Force medical reservists to essentially define a position. They had an 04 billet that I converted into an 04 slash 05 billet and created a position description that essentially was to try to translate the military lessons learned into animal experiments and then uh, use the animal lab as sort of a test bed for new innovations. So an example would be balloon aortic occlusion or to your specialty, Wayne, an indwelling vascular stent that can be placed through a vessel injury. So this group at Travis Air Force Base was doing some very innovative work. And at the same time, they were a fairly young team. They had a very good uh, mentorship, but I think also wanted some input from someone who had deployed a few times, had published a few papers, and had some academic experience. So I essentially became a consultant for this group and would go down there once a year for two weeks at a time, and then would also join their lab meetings on a weekly basis. It turns out that I'm still in contact with a number of folks from that, that research unit. And one of the surgical residents that came through that unit is now about to graduate from our trauma fellowship here at Penn. So it's a small world. It really worked out quite well. They were very successful in their academic productivity and really was a, a very synergistic experience for all of us. Let's talk about your civilian life. You serve currently as a trauma surgeon at the University of Pennsylvania, and positions have included trauma medical director, trauma section chief. How would you say that your ability to stay ready and relevant to deploy as a surgeon compared to your time when you're on active duty and now if you're called to go to a theater and expect to do what you had done before? In my trauma practice here in Philadelphia, unfortunately, 
it sometimes seems like a combat zone. Just as we were getting ready for this recording, I got notified that there was a police transport gunshot wound drop off. Then there was another one. Then there was another one. Then there was a massive transfusion activation. And this goes on basically every night and every weekend here in Philadelphia, again, sadly. We're blessed to have a Navy trauma training team here. So they're getting lots of experience in managing these critical injuries. And in fact, the on-call surgeon tonight is our Navy general surgeon, part of our team. And so she's really experiencing, I would say, optimal combat casualty care in a civilian setting. And it's because we're able to surround her with the folks that have experience, both military and civilian. We've got all the resources you could possibly imagine or want in a, in a trauma bay and in the trauma operating room and the trauma ICU. So now that she's seen really what optimal and right looks like when she goes into a deployed environment, it'll, you know, she'll have that, that playbook and that template in mind. For me, you know, I, I take call with all the other trauma surgeons that work in the ICU. I take some emergency general surgery coverage. And so that's all the kind of stuff that we do in a deployed environment. It's a, it's a seamless fit for sure. So the different services have different platforms. Some are individual, and you've just described that there's a Navy trauma team that's at your hospital. Can you describe to us what exactly that means when you say we have a Navy trauma team? This was really a proof of concept platform for the Navy. For many years, they had the L.A. County uh, Navy trauma training program that still exists. That was more of a just-in-time, we bring you in for a couple weeks of refresher or refresher training or finishing school. This is like full immersion. So what we had proposed was a three-year billet for a team of 11 that would include an administrator, four physicians, including a general surgeon, a trauma surgeon, an anesthesiologist, and an emergency medicine physician, three nurses, two corpsmen, they call them in the Navy, which are essentially the medics, and then a physician extender or a, a PA. So that's the team of 11, and they're fully integrated into our clinical services. And then on Wednesdays, they come together as the Navy team and cover the trial bay for 12 hours during the day, taking all the activations together. So it's a, it's a fully immersed model and one that I think really trains up trauma experts. And, and again, as I had mentioned, just a minute ago, it really allows the Navy to see what I think right looks like. But then we learn a tremendous amount from them as they share their experiences and, and, and also relate to us what sort of austere environments they may find themselves in. And then we think together about how we might simulate that. So it's a really bi-directional thing, but quite different from a just-in-time just in training model. So what do you think is the biggest concern for trauma and critical care readiness in the total force? Well, I think about that a lot. I would say one of the biggest concerns is an ongoing sustained commitment, even during peacetime. I worry most of all about the peacetime effect or the walker dip. If you look back at our conflicts from World War II to Korea, to Vietnam, to Iraq and Afghanistan, what you see is that at the beginning of each of those wars, the outcomes were really suboptimal, in some cases terrible. So can we hold on to the lessons learned? Can we maintain a joint trauma system? Can we keep our force ready and really trauma expert through 
even periods of lower combat operations. So mothballing our capabilities, letting, letting our teams get rusty. I mean, I think that's really what, what concerns me most. And I actually wrote about that in the preface to our Journal of Trauma Military Supplement that's coming out in August. The title is The Cost of Doing Business. It certainly is a cost to this, but the cost of not doing it, in my mind, is, is so much greater because it's, it's measured in lost lives. And here we're talking some resources, some funding, and, and really a commitment. And to me, I think it's worth it. What is the most important lesson you have learned in combat casualty care if you had to pick one that you would like to pass on to other military medical providers? Yeah, I think there are just so many. If I had to encapsulate it into one, I would say learn from history. As I read through books like Surgeon to Soldiers, written by Edward Churchill, who was a consultant in World War II, and read about the types of challenges they faced, it's, it's so interesting to see how relevant, even to today, it seems. So learn from history, the types of wound, wounds that they were seeing, the clinical challenges that they faced were very similar to what we faced over the past 20 years. So learn from history and hold on to those lessons. One of the things that as you progress in military rank and get to the level of 05 and 06, you sometimes wind up in a job with a unintelligible acronym. And so your current reserve position is augmentee to the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Health Readiness Policies and Oversight, the DASDHRPO Office of Secretary of Defense Pentagon. I love it. That is so classic military. Tell us about what that is. Well, to, to be perfectly honest, I had to Google that acronym myself when I first saw the job opening. What the heck is this? It turns out that it's a position in health affairs. You're assigned to really the highest level strategy group for the military health system. My day-to-day -day reserve jobs actually involved working on thought products like a Department of Defense Instructions, DODIs, were they're affectionately known as DODIs, but perhaps even more tangibly, the military supplement to the Journal of Trauma. That was one of the big products for my reserve time was producing that, that supplement every year together with Travis Polk and, and Andre Kapp. So I reported to David Smith, who reports to the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Health Affairs, currently the Honorable Lester Martinez Lopez, MD. So it's, it's a fascinating position, quite different from my day job and one where we have a sort of an inside view of the inner workings of uh, the military health uh, leadership at a strategic level. So if you weren't busy enough being uh, a trauma surgeon in civilian life and then having this long job title with the reserves, you're, you and I also share membership in the Excelsior Surgical Society, and you happen to be the president. Tell us about the society and the recent initiatives and why someone would want to be a member. Well, the society is just an incredible organization. I mentioned Edward Churchill. This organization started in 1945, was inspired by Edward Churchill. It was started by folks who had deployed as surgeons with him to the Mediterranean and North African theater 
in World War II. They came together at the Excelsior Hotel in Rome to talk about their experiences, to reflect on lessons learned from two to three years of combat to casualty care. They had a close collaboration with the Royal Army and Royal Air Force and Royal Navy, actually. And this first meeting in Rome in 1945 actually followed immediately after a British combat casualty care symposium. So they wanted to get together to reflect on what they had just heard over the previous several days. Edward Churchill sort of distilled it all down. And then they discussed amongst themselves and said, okay, here's how we're moving out. This is, this is what we make of this, these British recommendations. And this is how we would apply it. And this is how it will be used to, to benefit our patients. Fast forward a year, they all went back to the U.S. after Victory in Europe Day. And a couple of the members were so inspired by their experiences with Churchill, their combat experiences, that they wanted to form an organization. So they named it for that hotel that they had met in. They had their inaugural meeting in October of 1946 in Boston, which is where Churchill was in practice. They established the lectureship that we still have today, the Excelsior Lecture, the Edward Churchill Lecture of the Excelsior Surgical Society. That first lecture was given by Blaylock, and he went on to just have a fantastically successful career as a basically a pediatric cardiac surgeon, but he operated not just on children, he operated in every part of the body and, and gave a very expansive first lecture. So it came out of inspiration from their combat experiences and went on to become a society that allowed this group of surgeons and their families to get together every year. The last surviving member was Michael DeBakey. When he passed away, the society really went into hibernation for a few years. And in 2014, 2015, the American College of Surgeons, USU, now Dean Elster, put their heads together and said, we really want to support the military. This is the American College of Surgeons. They formed the Military Health System Partnership with the ACS. And a year later, Dean Elster had the inspiration that in fact, our group needed a society, an academic outlet and thought what better way to honor our legacy of combat casualty care than to reanimate the Excelsior Surgical Society. So we were reanimated in 2015 after a number of years of being inactive. And so this is basically Excelsior 2.0, uh, but we look to our past and, and want to honor that and are very proud of that uh, heritage. And looking forward, we want to provide an opportunity for military surgeons who are academically minded to, to get together and come up with ways to preserve the lessons of the past, to improve care in the present, and to anticipate the challenges of the future. So I know that a, a lot of the, the specialties have kind of military symposiums, like the Gary Ratton for general surgery, the Kimbro for urology, SOMOS for orthopedic surgery. Is the Excelsior Society a society for all military surgeons, or is it more for combat trauma surgeons? Who is it for, and what are the benefits of joining? That's a really great question. And over the past two years, we've really made a concerted effort to expand our horizons, to really welcome military and civilian surgeons of all specialties. The common theme, though, is that you have to have an interest in supporting the readiness mission in some way. 
Uh, if you look back to the very original founders of the first Excelsior Surgical Society, it was founded by an orthopedic surgeon and a neurosurgeon, inspired by Edward Churchill, who was a very broad-based general surgeon with a focus on thoracic and endocrine surgery of all things. From that history, we, we really want to expand our scope and include surgeons of, of all types for sure. So long as you want to support combat casualty care in some way, either directly as a military surgeon or in some way as a civilian surgeon. So what advice would you give to people early in their surgical career if they wanted to get involved with improving military medicine? I think that's so important. Sometimes, and, and I know I struggle with this early on, it's easy to sort of become cynical or to become disillusioned. But as a military surgeon, you are in a very unique position and you have an opportunity to, to really inspire change or to be the change yourself. For me, it was looking for opportunities to improve combat casualty care, looking at ways to apply engineering solutions to difficult clinical problems, applying the lessons that I learned in combat to the civilian setting and vice versa. So I would say keep your eyes open, find very good mentors, and really try to stay positive. It's a great calling. It's a very unique mission. And there are not many people out there who can do it and who can do it well. And so I would encourage young military surgeons to stay positive and, and look for those opportunities and they'll find you. I know a lot of people don't think about this when they're actively working, but looking forward, how would you want your legacy in military medicine to be? Well, Doug, it's hard not to, to think about getting old, but I guess I want people to remember me as someone who made a difference, who was willing to take on challenges. I think back to the ECMO lung rescue experience. That was not a foregone conclusion that the military would actually have a lung rescue program. So tackling that challenge, really, I relish the challenge, but I'm just thankful that it turned out the way it did. And I would say I hope that I'm remembered as someone who was positive, that influenced other people for the good, and really made the most of, of my time in uniform. We've been speaking with Dr. Jeremy Cannon on Wardock's podcast. Jeremy, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights with us, and thank you for your service to the nation. It's such a pleasure to be with you this evening, and thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to Wardock's. We sure hope you enjoyed it. Wardocs is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcasts and rate and review this episode and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team Wardocs on wardocspodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardocs has you covered. Spread the word.